Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. At The Bite from Futurism.com, we're reporting that scientists are puzzled because the James Webb is seeing stuff that shouldn't be there. (laughs) Is it like a little alien hand waving? Like, how bad is it? (laughs) So for a long time, scientists believed that the universe's earliest, oldest galaxies, we thought they were just small, kind of chaotic and misshapen, you know, kind of like first drafts, if you will. (laughs) But... According to the Washington Post, this new telescope captured imagery has revealed those galaxies to be shockingly massive, not to mention balanced and well-formed, a Hmm. finding that challenges and will likely rewrite long-held understandings about the origins of our universe. All right. So older images of the universe that we captured by the recently dethroned Hubble Space Telescope seemed to confirm the widespread belief that early galaxies were chaotic and haphazard places. The James Webb Telescope, however, appears to show that those findings were an illusion based on Hubble's limited capabilities. (laughs) It's like if you walk around without your glasses on and you're like, oh, all these animals are naturally very fuzzy. And (laughs) now you've found out. That's pretty much exactly it. Quote, we thought the early universe was this chaotic place where there's all these clumps of star formation and things are all a jumble. Hubble's imagery was missing all the colder stars and the older stars. We were really only seeing the hot young ones. (laughs) So while these findings have taken the scientific community by surprise, they're not at all a cause for alarm. Major technological advancements in astronomy and beyond have a long history of leading to periods of large-scale scientific discovery. And right now, it really feels like we're in one of those watershed moments. And really, discoveries like this, it means that the James Webb Space Telescope is doing exactly what they wanted it to do. It's revealing new and exciting stuff about our mind-bogglingly expansive universe, and it's answering old questions, but also asking new ones along the way. It feels very like that scene in My Cousin Vinny. Where they're like, how could you have possibly seen the grits being like, (laughs) I don't know. I just feel like poor Hubble is getting beaten up now when it's like, look, man, I was seeing as well as I could. I did my best, you know. (laughs) Super fair. We don't have to trash Hubble. Uh (laughs) Some shiny new telescope's going to come along after James Webb and like totally tell us James Webb was wrong, too. Like, come on. (laughs) All you are looking for are those hot young stars. How dare you? That's right. That's right. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Vice.com. and It's titled, An AI-Generated Artwork Won First Place at a State Fair Fine Arts Competition, and Artists Are Pissed. (laughs) (laughs) I can see how they might be. (laughs) Yeah. I won first place, a user going by Syncarnate said in a Discord post above the photos of the AI-generated canvases hanging at the fair. Syncarnate's name is Jason Allen, who is president of Colorado-based tabletop gaming company Incarnate Games. According to the State Fair's website, he won in the digital art category with a work called Theater d'Opera Spatial. 
The image, which Alan printed on canvas for submission, depicts a strange scene that looks like it could be from a space opera, and it looks like a masterfully done painting. But Alan did not paint this piece. AI software called Midjourney did. This distinction has caused controversy on Twitter where working artists and enthusiasts accused Alan of hastening the death of creative jobs. <laughs> Sorry. Artists, yeah. <laughs> artists are concerned about the rise of AI-generated art. Alan said in the Midjourney Discord server on Tuesday, I knew this would be controversial. How interesting is it to see how all these people on Twitter who are against AI-generated art are the first ones to throw the human under the bus by discrediting the human element. According to Alan, his input was instrumental to the shaping of the award-winning painting. He says, I've been exploring a special prompt that I will be publishing at a later date. I've created hundreds of images using it, and after many weeks of fine-tuning and curating my gens, I chose my top three and had them printed on canvas after unshackling with Gigapixel AI. Alan said that his critics are judging the art by the method of its creation, and that eventually the art world will recognize AI-created art as its own category. Alan said he had clearly labeled his submission to the State Fair as Jason Allen via Midjourney, and once again noted the human element required to produce the work. And despite the controversy, the win has only encouraged him, he said. I'm not stopping now. This win has only emboldened my mission. Wow. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Like I know that like I know there's a lot of artists who are not okay with it, but I feel like this is exactly like the argument that's been made at every increased technological thing. Like oh, there yeah. were hand-drawn artists who were like Photoshop that, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely destroys all of my incredible artistry skills and gives you tools that make it easier for you and I don't know. I think like he said, first of all, there is still human input and mm-hmm. all of the AI stuff is still drawing its knowledge from a database of human art, right? That's mm-hmm. how it knows what art is. So you can still create something that the computer couldn't possibly have ever thought of because no other human has ever thought of it. Yeah, I do agree that an AI separate category is the way to go, though. Yeah, I just I think there's always going to be jobs for humans. They're just going to be different jobs than they used to be. And everybody gets grumpy when they're told they have to have a different job now. But there's mm-hmm. always going to be a place for humans. The thing that's interesting about Midjourney too, though, is that you can tell when it's a Midjourney art. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw that winning piece and I was like, oh, that's mid-journey. Like, who cares? Mm. Uh, because immediately <laughs> it just has a certain type of look and it's only interesting and like awe-inspiring the first time you see it. And don't get me wrong, it is completely fascinating and mid-journey can generate a huge array of different things. But mm-hmm. when it comes to things that are like fabricated artwork, it has a very specific style mm-hmm. because it's skimming from a very specific data set. Right. What- it's almost like the Casio, like a little Casio of instruments, right? Like exactly. you can play it's a lot like of different Different things curing, through it. You know, mm-hmm. you just press the button, <laughs> and you drop the capsule in, and then boom, you have a kind of an okay artwork. Like it, you know, it tastes like great coffee if you've never had coffee before. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the thing is that, like, this art and Mid Journey and Dolly are going to get better. And we're going to approach a world where you'll have more like art technicians who work on commission and know how to use the tooling really well and combine them to create anything you could want or any sort of imaginative thing. But like people are still going to try. I mean, I I know artist friends who are like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to try and redraw that to practice on my own art or to take inspiration from it because it really is drawing the aggregate of human consciousness. Where that lands for capitalism, that is a much bigger and hairier question. (laughs) Uh, Which we'll need to contend with because one of the other big pieces of news that happened recently that no mainstream coverage is being given to, as far as I can see, is the release of Stable Diffusion, which Hmm. is basically Dolly and Midjourney 
but it's open sourced. It's on your computer. It can run on like a consumer GPU, essentially, and you can generate exactly the same level of quality that Dolly or mm-hmm. Midjourney do, but on your computer. Huh. And that's mm-hmm. going to change everything. Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. heard of that at all. I'm very interested. Because I have, like, I've wanted access to Dolly, but also haven't had the energy to, like, put myself on the waiting list and get in it. <laughs> but if I could just go and download it for free on my computer, I might do yep. that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little tricky to use at the moment. But I mean, within five years, it's going to be the kind of thing you can probably just install in your browser. You know, mm-hmm. it just talks to a server and you just put in a little box, whatever you want, whenever you want. Man, um, there's art yeah. for every book cover I'm ever going to have from here on out. Like, I don't there have to go. worry about it. Like, yep. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, fair warning. I knew when I picked this article that Angie was not going to like it, but here goes. (laughs) It's from The Observer, and it's called The Super Rich Preppers Planning to Save Themselves from the Apocalypse. Okay. I I do know some (laughs) of what's in here, and it's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the thing. We have definitely talked about this stuff before on the podcast, you know, these luxury bunker companies and all that, but... This article is different because it's from Douglas Rushkoff, who I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. He's this Mm -hmm. really amazing sort of humanist philosopher. He's written a bunch of books. He's got a fantastic podcast. His whole outlook is both inspiring and I've found usually right. So the whole thing is an excerpt from a new book he has out called Survival of the Richest, which was inspired by something that happened to Rushkoff a while back that honestly, it feels like a scene out of a satire. Like, it's just so hard (laughs) to believe some of these quotes. So he starts by explaining that while his work is entirely focused on how we can use technology to improve our current reality for humanity as a whole, he nonetheless often gets mistaken for a futurist. And he gets invited to give these talks in front of people who want to know what the next big thing is so they can help destroy the world even faster. And Rushkoff says he usually just ignores that kind of invitation But, quote, sometimes a combination of morbid curiosity and cold hard cash is enough to get me on a stage in front of the tech elite where I try to talk some sense into them about how their businesses (laughs) are affecting our lives out here in the real world. So he's supposed to go give this talk to what he's been told is a group of ultra wealthy stakeholders. And he gets picked up in a limo that takes him to the middle of the desert where everyone else is arriving by private jet. And he's put into this little conference room, which he's thinking is just, you know, his green room before they put him up on stage. But instead, these five Silicon Valley guys walk in and just sit around the table with him. And it turns out they don't want to hear the speech he's prepared at all. They just want to ask him questions. And it starts out innocently enough, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, who's going to get quantum computing first, China or Google? But before long, it slips into what they really want to ask, starting with which is going to do better in the climate crisis, Alaska or New Zealand? And how long should we plan to survive in isolation? And is it worth it for a shelter to have its own air supply? What's the likelihood of groundwater contamination? And then, he says, the CEO of a brokerage house, which, by the way, he names none of these guys, but you get the impression that if he did, we would know who they are. This guy asks him, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? (laughs) okay yeah and suddenly everyone is all in and the discussion on that single question takes up the rest of the hour he said (laughs) one guy told him he had already secured a dozen navy seals to make their way to his compound if he gave them the right cue but he was worried and i think rightly so that in an actual apocalypse they could easily turn their guns on him and take the compound for themselves And at this point, Rushkoff says, the billionaires all started lobbing out their own ideas since clearly they'd been thinking about this. 
One of them suggested using combination locks on the food supply that only they knew. Another <laughs> one, another one thought maybe they could make the guards wear disciplinary collars of some kind. Or better yet, maybe they'd dispense with humans altogether and just build robots to serve as guards and workers if the technology could be developed in time. So dystopian. I mean, yeah. like wow. my husband and I, we have a refrain around the house that we've obviously borrowed from thinkers greater than us. But we believe billionaires should not exist objectively. Right, right. <laughs> and this does such a great reason illustrating why. Because the corruption of that thought, I, I just... Yeah, it breaks your brain on some level to be mm -hmm. that disparate from the rest of humanity. And yeah. Rushkoff says, I tried to reason with them. The way to get your guards to exhibit loyalty in the future was to treat them like friends now, I explained. They rolled their eyes. Yep. And <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel here is, as Rushkoff says, these guys are so desperate for a way to remain winners that they don't realize they've already lost. Right? Yes. Anyone with a sliver of rationality left in their brain can see that none of that is going to work. And the fact that they don't see it means that we do not have to worry about these guys in that kind of future. <laughs> Because that kind of future, if it happens, is going to take them right out of the equation immediately. Mm -hmm. On a happier note, he says there are some one percenters doing it right. After he came back from the weirdest meeting ever, he mm. wrote about it on his blog, like, y'all are not going to believe what these guys just said to me. And two things happened. First, he was inundated with contacts from prepper companies who wanted to be put in touch with these billionaires so they could siphon off their money. Yeah. But second, he got an email from a guy named J.C. Cole who is a diplomat who was stationed in Latvia during the fall of the Soviet Union. So on the one hand, this guy is rich and he's a prepper, but he's also someone who has actually seen firsthand what it looks mm -hmm. like when a society crumbles and what it takes to rebuild from scratch. And so J.C. Cole tells him, yeah, you're totally right. It's not about bunkers. It's about farms. Unfortunately, he says it is still about farms with really good security because the food shortages will be real and that's going to be a problem for a while. But mm -hmm. the people who successfully run those farms will be inspiring leaders that everyone likes and who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty planting crops alongside everyone else. It's cooperation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And of course, like all preppers, J.C. Cole's looking at the world right now and he doesn't like what he sees. So he's <laughs> been setting up self-contained, sustainable farms around the world, which he uses for now to show people what survival would actually look like when they're Ooh. not living out their cosplay fantasies. Mm. <laughs> and, wow. Yeah. And he said that while, yes, at first you are going to have to protect your farm, the idea long term is not to isolate yourself and keep everyone else out because these things only work with massive amounts of physical labor and cooperation. So mm -hmm. ideally, what Cole wants is to educate enough people now and get enough of these locations going so that if, or as he sees it, when the time comes, we have enough outposts for people to come and bang on the gates and be told, no, we can't support all of you, go away. But here's the information you need to go set up a working farm just like this one for yourself, right? You have to share those resources and share that knowledge and that only works if somebody sort of nearby you has that information. So that's basically yeah. what he's trying to do is set up a library, basically like a hands-on information depot. And if you're one of the guys who wants to set up a farm with him and you have the resources to invest in that, it's sort of like having the money to set up a bunker, but it's, you know, an open air bunker, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all of that is so predicated on the idea that our soils are still going to be clean enough to grow food. 
Yes, and that is true. (laughs) You know, if if we're talking about events, vertical indoor farms seem to be among the more safe versions of those, especially if we're talking about urban communities. But that's still infrastructure and capital for resourcing. And And that's one of the things that Rushkoff was talking about is like, okay, so these, you know, Silicon Valley billionaires are talking about, oh, we've got our completely isolated indoor vertical farms. And he's like, yeah, but you are still reliant on this supply Mm -hmm. chain for Mm -hmm. replacement parts and computer Mm -hmm. motherboards. If your whole farm is computer run and your hard drive goes out, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely incredible to me how little they think about this stuff. Like, especially <laughs> some of the tech billionaires. Like, yeah. I was thinking about making my house a smart house a while ago, and then instantly I was like, no, I would just get <laughs> locked out of my own house, like, yep. very quickly, you know? Like, yep. mm-hmm. power goes out, or I'm just in a bad situation, or, like, you know, I think about the fact that my car is entirely run through an electrical ignition. And if there's ever some sort of insane thing like an EMP shockwave, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you just like can't turn it on, even though all the gear, all the parts, everything works fine. And yet these dudes are like, oh, I'm just going to have my super hyper industrial complex yeah. that's going to live in mm-hmm. this underground bunker with a very complex HVAC system. I mean, <laughs> they're just going to suffocate. Like yeah. they're not going to have an mm-hmm. AC guy and then they're going to die. Sorry. And-, <laughs> <laughs> and yet I also saw a thing a long time ago that was about like... Like in the fall of the Soviet Union, like there was no fuel anymore, a whole bunch of people converted their cars to be wood burning. Like it was insane. They managed to. Yeah. But that's a thing you can do where if you have a semi working car and you understand how combustion works. If you're smart enough to have the knowledge of how things work and actually get hands on with it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being like, no, I have money. I can buy whatever that is. The knowledge is what matters. And the people who have the hands-on skills are what is going to matter in any Mm -hmm. kind of apocalyptic scenario. Mm -hmm. So, you know, go take those vocational classes, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And be kind to others, Mm y'all. You need the practice. (laughs) Yeah. Make friends now. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. All right. So events, apocalypse, prepping. Well, what if we just didn't die? Hmm. Could be. (laughs) That may be far way off, but Vice is reporting that scientists have analyzed the DNA of immortal jellyfish to find a secret to eternal life. Mm. Because a new study going over the jellyfish Turritopsis dorni, quote, is the only species able to rejuvenate repeatedly after sexual reproduction, becoming biologically immortal. Every member of the species is an identical clone and starts life as a polyp that becomes a mature organism called a medusa. This isn't particularly unique, but what's amazing about T. Dorney is that if the medusas get injured, sick, or old, they don't throw in the towel. Instead, they become a cyst that turns back into a polyp and restarts the whole process, churning out more clones. And while it might be a bit different from the idea of living forever in a vampire story, it is, strictly speaking, biological immortality. You can also call it, as scientists do, life cycle reversal. So it's almost like if a person got old and then turned back into a fetus or a chicken into an egg. I'm really surprised I didn't call this Benjamin Button syndrome or whatever, but you know. <laughs> right. In a study published in the journal PNAS by researchers at the University of Ovedas in Spain, the authors describe how they compared the DNA of T. Dorney to another closely related jellyfish species that is not immortal to determine what makes it special. 
So they found several differences that they pinned as likely having an effect contributing to the jellyfish's immortality. So, for example, they found more copies of something called POLD1 and POLA2 genes, which encode different proteins, which, quote, suggest enhanced replicative capabilities in the species. The species also had more copies of genes governing DNA repair and something called telomerase, which are enzymes that replenish the telomeres on DNA that shorten with age. So this may contribute to a released telomere attrition and as a consequence to an enhanced cellular plasticity. So this knowledge is not going to let humans become biologically immortal. And listen, even if it could, we really want it. <laughs> but it is an astounding jump forward in our understanding of age and how some species defeat it entirely. Yeah, I mean, it feels like even if we could suddenly jump back to fetal stage and start over, we would lose our memories. So you wouldn't really be living forever. You'd just be like cloning your spouse <laughs> and then having a baby again, which would be creepy on a number of levels. <laughs> but in terms of like, I don't know, protecting ourselves from some of the ravages of age, like I'm pretty sure that telomeres have a lot to do with our mental processes, synapses, sure, yeah. maybe even playing a role in Alzheimer's. You know, if I could just be a hot 80-year-old, like a hot star 80-year-old. Right, 80 right. Year old, <laughs> we lived the veins. same length of time, but we were young and healthy the whole way through. That would be oh, pretty cool. Give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. I'm on kind of a similar theme. This article comes to us from theconversation.com. It's titled, Axolotls Can Regenerate Their Brains. These oh. adorable salamanders are helping unlock the mysteries of brain evolution and regeneration. Aww. Oh my gosh! It's exactly what Jennifer was worried about. So we just get some jellyfish DNA, axolotl DNA. That's yeah, the immortality then, potion, yeah, right? Yeah, you're good to go. We might look a little <laughs> bit weird at the end of it, but it's fine. Oh, come on, axolotls are adorable. Like, they, yeah, you, you wouldn't mind looking like one of them. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> Greenland's ice shelf is melting, so we're all going to be underwater. We might as well take this water world adaptation while we can, right? <laughs> yeah, very good point. So the axolotl is an aquatic salamander renowned for its ability to regenerate its spinal cord, heart, and limbs. In 1964, researchers observed that adult axolotls could regenerate parts of their brains even if a large section was completely removed. But one study found that axolotl brain regeneration has a limited ability to rebuild original tissue structure. So mm. the author is a researcher working on studying regeneration at the cellular level as well, Ashley Maynard. And Maynard and her colleagues in the Trutlin lab at ETH Zurich and the Tanaka lab at the Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna were wondering whether axolotls are able to regenerate all the different cell types in their brain, including the connections linking one brain region to another. So understanding what types of cells are in the brain and what they do helps clarify the overall picture of how the brain works. One way to understand which cells are expressing which genes is by using a technique called single-cell RNA sequencing, or SCRNA-seq. This tool allows researchers to count the number of active genes within each cell of a particular sample. This provides a snapshot of the activities each cell was doing when it was collected. Scientists have used scRNA-seq in fish, reptiles, mice, and even humans. But one major piece of the brain evolution puzzle has been missing, amphibians. So their team decided to focus on the telencephalon of the axolotl. They identified what genes are active when progenitor cells become neurons and found that many pass through an intermediate cell type called neuroblasts, previously unknown to exist in axolotls before becoming mature neurons. 
Using a specialized method of sCNA-seq, they are able to capture and sequence all the new cells at different stages of regeneration from 1 to 12 weeks after injury. And ultimately, they found that all cell types that were removed had been completely restored. Astonishingly, they also observed that the severed neuronal connections between the removed area and the other areas of the brain had been reconnected. This rewiring indicates that the regenerated area had also regained its original function. So the goal is that eventually further research in this area will help us discover how we can recover from potential traumatic brain injuries or work on drug and stem cell therapies that can help and boost the repair as well. And in the meantime, we're just going to keep brain injuring little axolotls. Like yes. <sighs> taking little bats to their heads or whatever. It's so sad. <laughs> yeah. And I actually very recently read a fascinating book that comes from the 1980s called The Body Electric, where they actually were talking about a lot of the studies they did in salamander regeneration. And what they found is it's all about the electrical signal of salamanders. Huh. And you could actually detect ion polarity coming out of injured wounds in salamanders, <gasps> which indicated there's an electrical system happening. Huh. And I'm going to share one other example because it's crazy. They did the same thing with a type of flatworm or tapeworm, I believe, called a planarian. And you can cut off the head and the tail of the planarian, and it'll regrow three separate planarians, one from the <gasps> head, one from the tail, and one from the middle. No! The wild thing is that if you run a strong enough electrical current through a planarian, and then you cut its head off and its tail off, it'll regrow the middle section backwards. The head will be <gasps> where the tail is, and the tail will be where the head is supposed to be. So hey, Dr. Moreau. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's this whole kind of like, honestly, we've known for a while electromagnetic system in the body, especially of salamanders. And this book is really fascinating. They were able to stimulate partial regeneration in human beings using electrical current as well. Huh. Very, very fascinating. And so it's interesting to see that we're finally coming into this study. Like scientists mm -hmm. used to believe they could not regress and you could not get something new out of it. But instead, we're finding, actually, if you can get the human body to go back to that blastema-like place, the progenitor cell place, and stimulate it electrically, you may be able to get some regeneration out of it. So we just got to shock ourselves if we get injured, is what you're saying. Uh, y yes, sure. <laughs> no, okay, I just, I just want to dumb it down to what I can do in my house. I'll get a little B battery. Like, you know when you lick the B battery and you get that little mm, shock? I just I'm really need to, like... worried about you flipping the polarity <laughs> of your ends by doing some DIY experimenting. That's here. true. Like, if I cut off my hand and shock my wrist, you're saying I might grow a foot instead. You I should know. be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, we might as well just call this episode Contemplating Our Own Mortality because I, too, have an article about extending lifespans through science with animals. So this one is from LiveScience.com, and it's called These Ant Queens Live 500% Longer Than Workers. Now We Know Why. Mm. And the reason this is interesting is that unlike a lot of ant species where the queens are born queens and they're straight up genetically different than worker ants, there is a species known as the Indian jumping ant, or Harpignathos saltator, where the queens are actually known as pseudo-queens because any female worker can transform into a queen when the old one dies. Yes! But this is actually a really big physical change for them to suddenly be laying eggs all day and night when you've never laid eggs before. And what's more, if you take a queen and put her into another colony that already has an established queen, she will revert back into a plain old worker. Ooh. As if that wasn't enough, worker ants of this species only live for a few months while the queens live for years. <gasps> so if you're a worker 
and you get crowned the new queen, which, by the way, happens through a brutal colony-wide brawl for dominance, you suddenly don't have to die of old age anymore. Unless you get moved into a different colony and revert to being a worker, at which point you're going to die pretty quickly again, regardless of how long you spent being a queen. Wow. Yeah. So all that, obviously pretty unusual, and scientists at New York University wanted to know more. So the first thing they found was that the queen ants have to massively jack up their insulin production in order to cope with all the extra food they're eating in order to grow all these eggs. And that's actually counterintuitive because insulin is known to be associated with the AKT signaling pathway, which is involved in many cellular functions, but is ultimately tied to the aging process. Basically, producing more insulin should mean that the queen dies sooner and not later. Mm -hmm. So they dug a little deeper, literally, and started sampling tissues from specific parts of the ants' bodies and sequencing their RNA to see if they could figure out the exact metabolic processes that were happening at each step. They took samples from the brain, ovaries, fatty tissue, and something called the fat body, which is an organ in ants that functions somewhat like a liver does in humans. And what they found was that the insulin isn't acting separately from or as a result of hormones released by the ovaries. The insulin itself triggers the egg growth in the ovaries through something called the MAPK signaling pathway. And that, in turn causes the ovaries to make a protein called IMPL2, which blocks the AKT signaling pathway and prevents the extra insulin from causing rapid aging. Secondarily, IMPL2 also provided the fat body with an anti-aging shield specific to that organ as well. So IMPL2 is pretty important and pretty special. What does it mean for us? You know, who knows? It could mean that IMPL2 is a critical discovery in the anti-aging field, or at the very least could play a role in the study of insulin-related diseases in humans. Or it might not, because mammals and ants are very different. But they do plan to study the effects of the protein in fruit flies next. So fingers crossed. I feel like this is all indicative, not just in the articles we're choosing, but in the, the things that scientists are studying right now. We're all really scared of dying. And we all really want to live a long time. <laughs> and we're willing to look at any animal in the animal kingdom and say, how are they doing it? Steal their ideas. What mm-hmm. genes do they have? What proteins do they make? Or maybe people have always felt this way. Maybe, <laughs> you know, when they first discovered antibiotics, they were like, now nah, we'll live forever. And, you know, anyway, maybe we'll live forever. <laughs> you know, I'll just take longer since our life expectancy rates across the U.S. have dropped uh, yes, significantly yes, in the last two years. So any improvement's going to be good news. Yeah. And the ants will lead us there. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, a bit of a departure, but Ars Technica is reporting that Japan has declared war on floppy disks for government use. Oh. (laughs) I guess they still have them. Oh, yeah. Not only do they still have them, but in Japan, 1900 government procedures still require submission on floppy disks. So this is uh, actually an issue. Legal issues have prevented the modernization to cloud data storage in the past, and government officials from Japan often use CDs, mini disks, or floppy disks to accept submissions from the public and businesses. For example, Japan's Mainichi newspaper reported that in December 2021, Tokyo police lost two floppy disks containing information on 38 public housing applicants. Oof. 
Taro Kono, Japan's newly appointed Minister of Digital Affairs, has declared his desire to modernize technology in the Japanese government, speaking out about Japan's reliance on Hanko hand stamps during the COVID 19 pandemic and fax machines instead of email. He has also been outspoken about the subject on Twitter. So, I don't know,、mm. good sign. Your digital person to actually know how to use digital technology.、Yeah. Imagine, y'all. As a storage medium, floppy disk technology dates back, are you ready for this? Over 50 years. Oh, yeah. I know.、Mm. Sony introduced 3.5 inch floppy disks in 1983, and they typically store a mere 1.44 megabytes of data in their most popular variation.、Mm. In fact, Sony <laughs> stopped manufacturing them in 2011, prompting Taro to quip during his press conference quote, Where does one even buy a floppy disk these days? <laughs> Yeah, that's horrendous. They haven't even made them in 12 years, and you're like, no, you have to get one for this government submission. Yeah,、that's、I mean,、ridiculous. you have to reuse them, wipe them. I mean,、Ugh. it's、uh, just a governance nightmare when it comes to data. But the good news, they're going to try to fix it. I mean, you know, it's nice to know that other countries have. Old technology problems, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, there is no government function in the United States that requires you to submit on floppy disk. That's nice. It's good to know. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include New Zealand's worsening wallaby plague, what happened to Anne Boleyn's heart, and the dangers of being overconfident. So, all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.